Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Well, every summer, my family would go on a road trip. We would pick a region of the country. We would pack into our 15-passenger van. I had a large family, so we had a van that we drove around. And we would drive from city to city, from national park to national park, to different historical sites, and we saw the entire country. Over the course of my lifetime, I have driven to 48 states, Uh, not Alaska or Hawaii. Those are a little bit difficult to drive to. If someone would like to send me there sometime, I'd love to check those off my list. I've been to a number of provinces of Canada, but we drove everywhere. One of the great things about a road trip compared to getting in a plane and just landing in another city is you, as you're driving, you get this tangible feel of just how big the country is. You, you experience the passage of this space and you go through all these big uh, open uh, places of nature and you realize you are part of something much bigger, much wilder, and as you go to different regions, much more diverse than you ever imagined just sitting at home. We're going to be starting a series today in the book of Acts. And as we read the book of Acts, it's a lot like a road trip across the country. As you read it, you realize that being a part of the Christian movement is being a part of something much bigger, much wilder, much more diverse than you ever imagined just sitting here at home. So I'm excited for us to begin doing this. Here at Christ Community Church, we have a four-year all-church Bible reading plan we call Bible Savvy. What we do from time to time is as we're reading through books of the Bible, we will occasionally have a teaching series that lines up with that reading plan uh, to help us sort of uh, dig in deeper into that section of God's word. And so we're going to start the book of Acts in this upcoming week. And so we're beginning uh, in July and August to just line up with that series. Uh, If you are not a Bible reader, this is a perfect time to jump in and give it a try. Uh, You can pick up our Bible savvy journals uh, at each of our campuses. You can download the mobile app and get it there, or you can sign up for a, an email that will actually send the scripture to your inbox each morning uh, if you want to follow along. If you are a Bible reader, but you're using a different plan, this might be a time to, uh, for a season, come in and use Bible Savvy, because uh, as you read along with us and you hear the sermons, uh, they're going to work better together. Uh, I'm really excited that we get, get to do this with the book of Acts, because the book of Acts is the very first history of the Christian movement that was ever written. It tells the story of how the church grew over the first generation of Jesus' followers. Today, there are over 2 billion people who would call themselves followers of Christ. There are churches in every nation in the world, and in some nations, there are churches in every city. For the last 2,000 years, the Christian church has been a major factor in world history. And because Christianity is everywhere and we see it all over the place, we forget that this is a movement that never really should have made it off the ground. It just doesn't make sense. Christianity is an an obscure offshoot of Judaism that began on the fringes of the Roman Empire. The the guy who started it was executed by the authorities because he claimed to be king. Just like dozens of other would-be messiahs, Jesus was killed for that claim. His first followers were uneducated fishermen, social outcasts. And their message was crazy. They went around telling people that the universe was being run by a homeless Middle Eastern carpenter who somehow defeated death and would one day return to decide the fate of every person who ever lived. That's nuts. It was a day where there was no social media, no mass media, no printing presses, no advertising campaigns. The message had to go from person to person, word of mouth, community to community. And yet within a generation, the movement had spread across the entire known world. 
The Roman Empire was filled with believers. There were communities in every major city. It, it attracted people from every social status and cultural background. Within 200 years, there were millions of people who called Jesus their Lord and Savior. This ought to make us ask the question, how in the world did that happen? Where did this come from? Even if you're not a Christ follower, you should be interested in this question. Because it wasn't like people in the ancient world were just more prone to believe these sorts of things. In fact, in Jewish and Roman culture, they were even more suspicious of Christians than people are today. They thought this was a bizarre, dangerous faith, which is why they persecuted followers of Christ. It's worth asking, what made this movement spread so far, so fast, with so much stacked against it? And for those of us who are Christ followers, wouldn't you like to know what made the early church so dynamic? Wouldn't you like to see that kind of spiritual power in your life and in our church? I sure would. So we're going to dig in. I'm excited about this in the book of Acts. We're going to start right at the very beginning. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Acts is a book in the New Testament. That means it's towards the end of the Bible, just after the biographies of Jesus. So if you find Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts is the very next book. The events in the book of Acts take place just after Jesus' earthly life, starting in about 33 AD, going to the early 60s AD. The book was actually written soon after those events took place. I think it probably was written in the late 60s. Others might date it a little later, but no later than the 90s AD, which means all of this was written down while the eyewitnesses of these events were still alive. In fact, the author is one of the eyewitnesses for about half of the things that happened in this book. He's a guy named Luke, who is a physician, a medical doctor, and he was a traveling companion and a friend of the Apostle Paul. And so he was around for a lot of things that happened here. And he actually knew all the people who were part of the other events, so he could actually go talk to them and hear their story as he wrote it down. Uh, Dr. Luke actually wrote two books that made it in the New Testament. He actually wrote more words of the New Testament than anybody. Uh, one of the biographies of Jesus that's called the Gospel of Luke was written by him. And so this book is actually a sequel to that book, which is what he mentions right in the very first verse here. Let's start reading. In my former book, Gospel of Luke, I, Theophilus, I wrote about all Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood before them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Around here, we believe that these human words are also words from God. And so we love to thank God for speaking to us in his word. Let's do that now. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Well, this passage is at the beginning of the book, introduces a number of the themes that we're going to see throughout the book of Acts. And one of the really big ones is this theme of the kingdom of God. Now, in the opening of the book of Acts, we've got this conversation about the kingdom of God. And when you get to the end of the book of Acts, it closes with a conversation about the kingdom of God. And at each key turning point in between, the kingdom of God is brought up. And so what it's, it's very clear that Luke wants us to read this story with this idea of the kingdom in mind as we read. So what we're going to find out from this passage is three characteristics of the kingdom of God that, that we should be looking for as we read. Here's the first one. The kingdom is a present future kingdom. It's a present future kingdom. Now, to really understand this, I'm going to have to recap the story of the entire Bible, okay? I think I can do it in, say, five minutes. You want to see me try? Okay, here we go. Um, It begins with Adam and Eve. The thing you got to know is the world was designed to run on kingship. Now, a little aside here. Have any of you seen the movie Hugo? Okay, it came out maybe, I don't know, about 10 years ago or so. A really lovely movie. And it's a, the story of uh, a young orphan boy who lives in uh, the railway station in Paris. And before his father died, his father was a clockmaker. And he worked on all of these intricate machines. And he taught Hugo, his son, uh, how to build these machines and make these machines and repair them. And so together, the two of them were working on this mechanical man, this uh, automaton, that once it was finished, would be able to write things and draw pictures through all these kind of mechanical gears. And so when Hugo's father dies, Hugo pours himself into finishing this machine. And he gets all the pieces in the right places, all this intricate machinery. He puts it all together. But when he's finally done, it doesn't work because he's missing one really important thing. There is a special key, this heart-shaped key that goes into the machine that once it's turned, activates the entire thing so it works the way it's supposed to, but Hugo doesn't have the key. The universe works the same way. When God made the world in Genesis 1, he put together this intricate, beautiful, lovely system that all the things were in the right place, day and night and sun and moon and stars and the land and the water and the sky and the birds and the fish and uh, the, the, the animals and the plants and everything was in its perfect place. But it would not work properly until the final key had been set to put it in motion. And that key was kingship. What God made was a creature to be the royalty of the world, human beings. When God made Adam and Eve, he appointed them as the king and the queen of the universe. And here's the idea. The idea is that Adam would be king and God would be the high king over him. That's the way the world is meant to be run. Now, the really tragic thing is that we rejected that plan. We said, God, we don't want to do that. We don't want to rule under your authority. but we want to rule for ourselves. And the thing that has messed up the world is that human beings have ruled the world not for the kingdom of God, but for the kingdom of me. And it's bent and broken every relationship and every system in the world. That's what's wrong with the world. Now, when this happened, God decided he wasn't gonna scrap the whole project. When it started to get busted and broken, he said, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm actually gonna salvage it from the inside. I'm gonna go into the mess here of everything that was broken and busted, and I'm gonna call out a people that I'm going to, to, to rule over them and they're gonna sort of be the pilot project for the renew, renewed world. I'm gonna be their king, they're gonna be my people and they're gonna show the world what it means to live under my authority. This group of people was the nation of Israel. 
That's what the story of the Old Testament is all about. God calls them out and says, you're going to live different. I'm going to give you a land to rule over. Uh, I'm going to give you my law to follow. I'm going to give you a temple and a tabernacle so that I will dwell with you. And you're going to show people what it looks to live like, what it looks to live uh, in my kingdom. And at the pinnacle of all this, God appointed a king, someone to replace Adam, someone to fill that role of a human king ruling on God's behalf. And that man was David. David was to be the king ruling under God's authority as the high king. And the idea was that as David ruled and as his children ruled, God made this promise. He said, you will always have a descendant on the throne. And and as they ruled under God's authority, the world would start to be stitched back together. The nations would see it and they would come and they would submit to that rule. And as that happened, things would start to be healed and, and put back together. But there was a serious, serious problem in the plan. As beautiful as it was, David had the same problem as Adam. Sin was shot through his heart. And every king that followed him had the same problem. And as these kings ruled, more and more they ruled on behalf of the kingdom of me rather than the kingdom of God. And the same thing that happened to Adam happened to the nation of Israel. The nation was destroyed by civil war and invading armies. And eventually God said, if you won't submit to me, if you won't follow my leadership, I'm going to do to you what I did to Adam and Eve and I'm going to take you out of your land. And what was called the exile. The pilot project had failed. It didn't work. But in the midst of that rubble, a group of people held on to the dream of the kingdom. And as things were falling apart, they kept showing up and telling these stories and saying, one day God's going to do it. He's going to restore the kingdom. He's going to bring back the scattered people. He's going to gather the nations under the rule of God. He's going to restore his presence. His Holy Spirit's going to come on all people. And eventually, he's going to fix the entire world. He's going to weave back the broken pieces. And even death is going to be undone. And the more they talked about this dream of the kingdom, these prophets here, these guys are called prophets, the bigger and the bigger the dream came. And they said, one day it's going to happen. And it's going to happen when a certain person shows up, a guy named the Messiah. This king, this heir of David, who's actually going to do what David never could and Adam never could. He's going to sit on the throne and rule the world the right way. And he is going to be king under the authority of God. And one day he's going to show up and we are waiting for him. That's the story of the Old Testament. That's the story of the Bible. And so when Jesus shows up, what he says, the major claim that he says is he's, I'm that guy right here. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one who's going to put the world back together. And that is a very, very divisive claim, if you think about it. To say that you're the king who's going to heal the world uh, is is really dangerous if someone isn't convinced of that. If you think you're that person, you're, you're probably a little bit crazy. If other people think that you're that person, then you're a threat to the authorities. Which is the reason that the Jews and the Romans, people who normally didn't get along, conspired to take him out. So they killed Jesus, and that should have been the end of it, because there were lots of people who said that they were that guy. But three days later, Jesus starts showing up places, talking to his disciples, gathering people, proving that he's alive. And every time he gathers his disciples, there's one topic he wants to talk about more than anything else. Look at verse 3. This is what it says. He appeared to them for 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. 
It makes sense that a few verses later, that if all he wants to talk about is the kingdom of God, that the disciples ask them this question. They say, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? I mean, it makes sense, right? Like, you, you, you finally defeated death. You, you've told us you were the king. You're the Messiah. You're the one who said they were, you, that they said was coming. And now you're here. It's happening, right? It's sort of like when I take my kids to go visit their aunt in Michigan. And we tell them, okay, we're, we're, we're going to see Aunt Jen Jen. And the whole time, they're looking out the window for the sign that says, welcome to Michigan. And as soon as we cross that, what do they say? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? That's what the disciples are doing. It looks like they've crossed into the kingdom. They're saying, are we there yet? And the way Jesus answers is really curious. Because at first it looks like he's dismissing their question. And then it looks like he's answering their question and telling them how it's all going to work out. So let's read his answer again. Verse 7, he says, It's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You see what happens here? First he says, eh, don't worry about the timing, okay? That's, that's God the Father's business. He'll worry about that. But then he describes how the kingdom's going to come. He says, you're going to be my witnesses, and it's going to spread to all these places. And then after answering the question, Jesus does something really unexpected, at least from our perspective. He just leaves. You ever wonder about that? Like, isn't that the craziest thing? Like, why in the world would he just leave? Like, it was just getting good, and he just goes. Like, he's sending out his people to spread this incredible message that he's risen from the dead. It really would have helped if he just stuck around and we could say, hey, go see him. He's right there, you know? Like, it would have gone a little bit faster than 2,000 years, right? Why does Jesus leave? Like, why would you take your very best player off off the playing field at the most crucial play of the game? It just doesn't make sense. The simple answer is this. He left to go to heaven because heaven is where the throne is. If he's going to take up his role as king, he's going to go to the right hand of God and sit down on that throne. What Jesus is doing is not actually leaving the field of play. He's going to the most powerful position in the game. He's sitting on the throne. It still leaves us with a question, though. The question is, did the kingdom actually come? Did the kingdom actually come? And the answer to that question is yes and no. Yes and no. Yes, the kingdom is already present. And no, the kingdom is still coming in the future. Both are true. It turns out there is not a clean break between the old age of sin and death and the new age of the kingdom of God. Between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, there is an overlap between these two things. And they exist at the same time. A lot of people will compare this. A famous analogy is between D-Day and V-Day. In D-Day, the decisive battle that won the war happened. The beaches of Normandy were taken, but there was still fighting to be done for months while the enemy was cleared out and peace was restored. We're in that in-between time. So the question is, where do we actually see Jesus's rule right here and now? Well, it happens among us, among God's people, Jesus rules in and through the church. This is what it means to be a Christ follower. We we use this word surrender around here all the time when we talk about becoming a follower of Jesus. And we mean that literally. Jesus is the king and we are surrendering to him saying, you do what you want to do. You're in charge. Within this community, we live out or we attempt to live out the values of the kingdom. We don't always do it perfectly, but that's what we're aiming to do. To be people who through both our prayers and the way we live, We say, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
the church is an outpost of the kingdom, an embassy of the future here in the present. About 100 years after the book of Acts was written, another Christ follower tried to describe to his friend in a letter the way believers in Jesus interact with the world. This is how he described it. It's a little bit long, but I'm going to read it to you because I think it's just so amazing. He says this, Christians are not distinguished from other people by country, language, or by customs which they observe. They don't inhabit, inhabit separate cities of their own or speak a strange dialect or follow some outlandish way of life. With regard to dress, food, and manner of life in general, they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in, whether it's Greek or foreign. And yet there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries, but they do so as those who are just passing through. As citizens, they participate in everything with others, yet they endure everything as if they were foreigners. Every foreign land is like their homeland to them, and every, every land of their birth is like a land of strangers. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They share a common table, but not a common bed. They live in the flesh, but they are not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, all, all the while surpassing the laws with their lives. They love all people and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They lack everything, yet they overflow in everything. They are dishonored, and yet their very dishonor, in their very dishonor they are glorified. They are spoken ill of, and yet are justified. They are reviled, but bless. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. And when punished, they rejoice as if they had been raised from the dead. You see how that might confuse people, right? What do you make of followers of Jesus in the world? As we look through the book of Acts, you're going to find people trying to decide, are they a threat or not? Are they, are they here to cause trouble or are they just all right? Like, what do you do with these followers of Jesus? In one city, when, when some Christians show up, they say, these are the people who are turning the world upside down and now they've come here and they're freaked out by it. It's because followers of Jesus represent a present future kingdom. Here's the second thing we got to look at, the question of how the kingdom spreads. Look at verse 8 again. It says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus describes the spread of the Christian movement in three phases. It starts at the center in Jerusalem, works its way out geographically to the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria, and all the way to the ends of the earth. This sequence is actually an outline for the book of Acts. The first seven chapters all take place in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 13 take place in Judea and Samaria. And chapters 14 to 28 tell the story of how the message goes to the very ends of the earth. The story actually ends in Rome, which is the capital of the Gentile world, the symbol of the ends of the earth. This is the reason we're actually calling this series Road Trip, because Acts tells this story going from city to city to city to city uh, as the message goes around the different, different places. Uh, the, each week, we're going to be looking at a different city uh, in that sequence. But here's the main thing that this sequence shows us. It shows us that the kingdom of God is a barrier-crossing kingdom. It is a barrier-crossing kingdom. Let me walk through those three regions again. They're not arbitrary. They, they represent some significant barriers that the Christian movement had to cross. Jerusalem is the historic capital of God's people. It's a place where David's throne was. It's where the temple was. It's where the Messiah begins his reign. 
But Judea and Samaria are not just random places that happen to be nearby. This is not the equivalent of saying, well, it starts in Chicago, but it's going to go on to all of Illinois and Wisconsin because those are the next two places. Judea and Samaria are very specific and very important in the story of the Bible. These two places are the divided halves of the kingdom of Israel. One of the great tragedies of the Old Testament is that the one people of God split into two, into Judea and Samaria. And again and again, the prophets lament this and they say, one day these two places will come back together under the reign of the Messiah. And so when Jesus says, you're gonna go announce the good news to these people, he's saying this prophecy is being fulfilled and he's telling these Jews to say, you're gonna actually have to go to people who hate each other and ask them to become part of one people again. You're gonna have to actually invite people who don't want anything to do with each other, that have been at war with each other for hundreds of years to come be part of the same family. They're gonna have to cross this barrier of ancient hatred. Then when Jesus talks about the ends of the earth, he's not just saying, well, it's gonna go all the way to, you know, he's gonna cover every place. He's saying something very specific about a barrier that needs to be crossed. The barrier between Jews and Gentiles. God had promised Abraham at the very beginning Through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. But for a long time, the message just stayed with Israel. But now Jesus is saying that barrier is being crossed and it's going out to the whole world. And we should be very thankful for for this because most of us are not Jewish, which means in this sequence, we are not in Jerusalem. We're not in Judea or Samaria. We're at the ends of the earth. If Jesus hadn't said this, no one would have gone to the Irish pagans or the Germanic barbarians that are my ancestors. My people would still be worshiping trees and rivers and rocks and Thor and things like that, which, you know, we've got something going on now these days. (laughs) The kingdom crosses barriers to reach all kinds of people. And what's so important about this, the thing we really need to see about this, is that diversity is fundamental to the Christian movement. Diversity is fundamental to the Christian movement. It is not an add-on. It's not an extra bonus. It is central to what Jesus is doing in his movement. As we read through the book of Acts, I want you to see this. The question of how people from different cultures and backgrounds can come together in one family to be partners in one mission is a central, central question of the book. It's not obvious when we read stories in the book of Acts to us because we've got different uh, cultural groups in our world that when they talk about Hellenistic Jews and Hebraic Jews and Samaritans and Greeks and Romans and Ethiopians and all this, we we just skim over those because we don't know who those people are. But to an ancient reader, they would say, diversity, diversity, diversity. They would be amazed at how wide-ranging this group of people is because those people shouldn't be together in the ancient world. And every time one of these cultural barriers gets crossed, it's a really big deal in the book. They, they struggle with it. They debate how to do it. They, they misunderstand each other. They, they hurt each other, and they've got to correct injustices because of it. It's very difficult. But if the kingdom is supposed to go to the ends of the earth, then we are compelled to cross barriers of culture. If a kingdom is not diverse, it is not the kingdom of God. What does this mean for you and me? It means that as followers of Jesus, we ought to be actively looking for ways to cross these kinds of barriers. Sometimes that is cultural barriers. Every one of us knows people of different cultures, different ethnicities, a coworker, a neighbor, classmate. Are you looking for ways to build a friendship and a relationship across that kind of a barrier? I love hearing stories of how that happens in our church. We we talk a lot about it when we hear stories of people going on go teams to different places in the world, building friendships across culture. But I love to hear it in in local settings as well. 
Uh, just recently, I heard about some folks at our Blackberry Creek campus. Uh, they've been reaching out to a, a group of uh, immigrants in Aurora from Nepal and Bhutan. Uh, most of the people in this group are not followers of Christ, but uh, uh, some of our people have met some of the, the followers of Christ there, and they're talking with them, saying, how can we show love to this group of people who are here in our community? How can we share the good news? How can we be a good neighbor the way Jesus would have us do? How can we show them the kingdom? Sometimes crossing barriers means crossing language barriers. I wonder if we took seriously the barrier crossing nature of the kingdom, if more of us might learn other languages to get to know people who are living around us. Did you know that a quarter of all people in Kane County speak Spanish as their first language? Some of them are your brothers and sisters, and some of them still need to know about Jesus. But the question is, are we willing to go the extra mile to say, I'm going to learn a language so that I can build a relationship with them? One thing that makes me really proud of our church is actually the way we're trying to cross language barriers around the world. I want to show you a list here, okay? Let me show you this list of names. What are these names? These are people groups or languages who a few years ago did not have a translation of the Bible in their language. We partner with an organization called Faith Comes by Hearing. Uh, their goal is to provide an audio recording of the Bible in every language on the planet, and it looks like they're on track to complete that goal by 2033. Uh, we're actually one of the biggest contributors to their ministry, and because of the generosity of this church, we've been able to fund translations and recordings of the Bible in each of those languages. There are tens of thousands of people who now have the Word of God in their heart language because of you. Isn't that amazing? It's It's unbelievable. We've got to be crossing barriers. The kingdom also means not just crossing cultural or language barriers, but socioeconomic barriers. When the gospel goes out in the book of Acts, both the rich and the poor respond. And the same is true today. What the kingdom means is that you should be in relationship with people who make a lot more than you and people who make a lot less than you. And you should treat each other as family. That should radically change how we see things. What what other barriers might the kingdom call you to cross? Uh, Barriers of political party. Barriers of age, barriers of health and disability. It might just start with the barrier of walking across your street and meeting your neighbor. Why is it so important to cross these kinds of barriers? Because that's what King Jesus did for us. Jesus is the ultimate barrier crosser. He stepped out of heaven into earth and he didn't say, you adapt to me. He said, I'm going to adapt to you. He wanted a relationship with us so much that he inconvenienced himself so that we could know him. And if that's what the king does, what should the subjects do? We are part of a barrier-crossing kingdom. Here's the final characteristic of the kingdom I want you to see. Look at verse 8 again. It says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you. What makes all all this work in the kingdom is that the kingdom is a spirit-powered kingdom. Uh, One time when Jesus was teaching his disciples before he died, he he said to them, you know, one day I'm going to go, and if I go, it's going to be better for you. What? Why would he say that? He follows up by saying, because if I go, I'm going to send the helper, the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully human, which means he's got a physical body. It means when he's on earth, he can only be in one place at a time. Uh, He can only be present with one group of people in one location. But what if Jesus could download his divine presence into each and every one of his followers? 
That what if the Spirit of God could dwell in each one of his ambassadors so that as we go out, his presence goes out with us? That would be incredible. Think of what could happen because of that. So Jesus says, that's the plan. I'm going to send the Spirit to to work through you. Look look at verse 1 of this chapter again. Look how Luke describes his previous book. He says, it's very subtle here. I wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and teach. What he began to do while he was here on earth. But now that he's gone back to heaven, he is continuing to do things through you and me by the power of his spirit. We believe in one God, but in some mysterious, amazing way, that one God exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Like like three notes in a musical chord, the persons of the Godhead are distinct, but they're united. They resonate with each other. They, They exist within each other. But each one of them is equally God. So when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we're not talking about a thing. We're not talking about a force out there. We're talking about a person. The the Holy Spirit is not an it. And so what happens on the very next page of the book of Acts is so incredible. Acts chapter 2 tells one of the most important events that ever happened in human history, the event of Pentecost. The disciples are obeying what Jesus said. They're waiting in Jerusalem. They're waiting and they're praying. They're gathered together. And as they do this... Suddenly they hear a sound, a sound of rushing wind, wild, invisible, blasting breath of a storm, filling up the room that they're in. And with the wind comes fire, like the flame that engulfed the burning bush when God spoke to Moses, like the crackling of the fire that consumed the sacrifices in the temple, like the blazing lampstand in the presence of God, a flame came to rest on each person that was present. Wind and fire, these ancient symbols of God's presence and power. What what it said was that the presence of God was no longer contained in a temple. The power of God was no longer on just one of the chosen few, the king or the prophet. The spirit of God had come to dwell in each and every one of God's people. And as the spirit falls on people, they, they are compelled to move. So these disciples, they move out of their little room. They go into the streets. They're compelled to speak. They start telling the story of Jesus to everybody that they see. And as they tell this story, there, there are thousands of people who have gathered for a festival from all around the world. They're, they're in Jerusalem. And as these people tell the story of Jesus, they hear it not in Aramaic or Hebrew, the language of the city. These people hear it in the language of their homeland. God is speaking through them and crossing a language barrier. Now, on that day, thousands of people heard the story of Jesus and 3,000 people bowed their knee to King Jesus for the first time. Jesus had kept the promise. His people had received power. They became his witnesses and the Christian movement began. So many of us would love to experience more of the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You hear us say things like, the Spirit of God lives in you. And you say, well, okay, I, I guess theoretically, I, I don't know how I can tell, though. It just doesn't feel that different to me. There are a number of reasons why people don't experience the power of the Spirit more. But let me just highlight one that's pretty common for a lot of us. For, for most of us, when we look to God, basically what we're doing is saying, God, I want to fit you into my agenda. Rather than us saying, God, what's your mission? How can I join in? The reason most of us have a shallow experience of the Spirit's power is because we're trying to fit God into our little lives rather than fitting our lives into God's big story. We, we treat God like a personal assistant whose job is to help us reach our goals. But think about why Jesus actually sent the Spirit. 
According to this passage, it was to transform us into witnesses, representatives of him, people crossing barriers to invite people into the kingdom. That, that means the Spirit is not a tool for us to use. The Spirit is Lord. The Spirit is God. He is the one who calls the shots. And his plan is to make sure that the mission of Jesus is accomplished. He's got his own agenda and cannot be controlled by us. And that's actually really, really good news. Because most of us on our own, we, we live pretty small lives. And the Spirit is inviting us into something much, much bigger, a worldwide kingdom. You ever hear people talk about having a prompting from the Holy Spirit? It's kind of a weird Christian thing to say, okay? You hear it around, you're like, what are you talking about? A prompting from the Holy Spirit. What they're describing are basically random thoughts or urges to do something or say something that you sense in some way aren't coming from your own head. They're, they're coming from somewhere else. They're coming from God. Now, that might sound really, really weird to you, but many of you, you know what I'm talking about. Although many of you, if you're honest, you'd say, you know what? I, I don't get those kind of promptings very much. It, it doesn't happen very often. Now, some of you would say, you know, you think everything's a prompting from the Holy Spirit. That's another problem for another sermon. We'll address that another time. But some of you wonder, why doesn't the Spirit prompt me to do things more? I'll be honest from my own experience, okay? I only get promptings from the Holy Spirit in two different situations. One is if I'm sinning and I need to stop and go and confess. The Spirit presses on me like, you got to do something about that. The other place is if I'm doing something that contributes to the mission of God, not my own agenda. So the kinds of promptings I get are things like this. Go strike up a conversation with that person in Starbucks. Go, go offer to pray for that person. Or you're in a conversation. I know you weren't planning on bringing up Jesus, but you need to bring up Jesus. Go ask your kids this question. Talk to them about me. You need to set aside a little bit of money because you're going to help pay for someone's bill or you're going you're to contribute to that cause or that need that came up. Volunteer to, to help that person. Invite that person over to dinner. These sorts of things are the kinds of things that I feel like the Spirit says, you should do that. I'm compelled to do that. And when I'm, I'm prompted by the Spirit, it is always something that has to do with God's kingdom purposes around me. And the more I respond to those promptings, the more of those promptings I get. I'll tell you this. If you want to experience the power of God's Spirit, the best thing you can do is put yourself in a risky place where you are trying to do something for God's kingdom, where you're trying to advance God's purposes in the world. When you're in that sort of situation, you're going to be begging for the Spirit to show up because you're going to be in over your head, but the Spirit will probably show up. Because that's why Jesus sent him, for that purpose in particular. We are part of a present future, barrier-crossing, spirit-powered kingdom. Something much, much bigger than our little lives. And it's exciting. And we're going to see a lot of this as we read through the book of Acts. It's going to be a fun trip. So let's pray. Father, we are so, so grateful that you have appointed Jesus to be our king and you have sent the Spirit to empower us for his kingdom. God, that's what we want to see. We want to see the power of your Spirit at work in us and through us. God, we want to see people around us brought into the kingdom to find forgiveness and wholeness and healing. God, we want to see communities transformed because we are people of justice and reconciliation. We want to see your kingdom come more on earth as it is in heaven. And we wait patiently for the day when we will see that in full. Come, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.